awaits us. In Christ, that is what awaits us. You know, I was thinking of, um, as we're going into, we're going to go into a couple chapters here this evening. We'll be in um, First Chronicles chapter, chapters 18 and 19. But I was thinking about the psalmist. And just considering David, and as we um, go into these two chapters, and we see um, how it was that the Lord was giving David victories over his enemies, that the Lord was with him. The reason why he was enjoying these victories was because the Lord was with him. And in, uh, in Psalm, Psalm 90, 91, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust when we'll see that on display throughout these two chapters that we're going into. I was also thinking about how it was that even though we know that David was the sweet psalmist of Israel, uh, he was a, um, a shepherd at a young age. He was anointed as king at a young age, and yet it was years later before he assumed the throne of Israel. But he was also that young man that when he saw the Philistines cursing his God, and he saw that the army of Israel was doing absolutely nothing, in fact, they were struck with fear, he was the young man who had so much courage and had so much faith and trust in the Lord that he was willing to pick up a sling and a stone and take out the champion of the Philistines. He is the man who we know uh, was not allowed to build the temple, although it was his desire to build the temple because he was a man of war. And and yet, as we know in the psalm, Psalm 119.11, Psalm 119.11 is, is is a verse that is oftentimes uh, memorized, committed to memory. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? So we, we, we know, in fact, uh, one way to remember that is you can dial 911 either way, right? Um, and, uh, and so that's, that psalm speaks of um, the, Lord, the Lord, God's word covering us and being, um, being our safety as we know God's word and we apply it. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then Psalm 119, 105, um, the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right? So beautiful are these pictures that are drawn for us because we know that God's word, and that's as we come together on Wednesdays and on Sundays, as we go through God's word, what I always pray is that the Lord do his effective work in our own lives as we yield to his authority. Right? We are being sanctified, we are being built up in the Lord. And as we do gain knowledge, I pray that with that, we gain an understanding of how to apply, apply that knowledge. Um, sometimes there's the personal work um, of, of, of personal conviction, and um, there's a work that the Lord wants to do in our lives to, to correct something, to strengthen us in other ways, to purify us, and to do all these types of things. Uh, what is necessary is, is an attitude of humility. It's a heart of humility toward God, 
to receive his word and to do that in our lives. We need, we need to surrender ourselves and yield ourselves to his authority. And other times throughout the same section of scripture that we go through, um, it's, it serves, and I pray it serves, to continue to mold us and shape us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the God in whom we profess our allegiance to and we trust in for salvation and look to for the hope that we have of forever being in his glory, that he may continue to mold us into an image that more reflects the character and the glory of God in our lives. And so that's what we have before us as we realize that Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet. So it shows me where I'm at. It's the word of God that does that. By his spirit, he gives us an understanding. He reveals to us our very own hearts. Shows us where we're standing. And then the word also doesn't leave us just in that place. That's what's wonderful, right? God's grace, his mercy, um, his patience with us. Uh, His word also gives us the way. And he lights that path up. That way we may walk in the sureness of his word. And we know that we are upright before him in bringing him glory. Heavenly Father, we want to commit this time of study into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing, Lord, your anointing. Fill us with your spirit. As we consider... Lord, who you are in our lives and how you have demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Lord, Father, you sent your son to die for us, to pay for the very sins that we have committed so that as they're atoned for, we can by your grace be forgiven as we trust trust in the death burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, Father, I ask that you would forgive us of our sins, Lord. Set us in the right place at this very moment. Help us to be settled in you, at peace with you. And therefore, having ears to hear what you would have to say in hearts that are willing to obey, to walk out, In obedience to you, those things that we hear this evening from your word. And so we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're covering a couple chapters. We're in 1 Chronicles and we'll be in chapters 18 and 19. We're going to look at the victories of God that he gave to King David and Israel over their neighboring nations, but some other things happened. So some of the victories that we'll see are over the Philistines, the Ammonites, and so as well the Syrians. So let's begin 1 Chronicles chapter 18 and verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath and its villages out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So we'll stop there, just a couple verses. We go into just really quick victories that um, David and Israel knew over the Philistines and over the Moabites. As soon as David's reign was settled and the worship of God was established within within the center of the nation of God's people, 
David at that very moment wasted no time in attacking the neighboring nations that had previously aggressively attacked Israel and listen to this, taken territory from God's people. That's what they had done. And we've learned that as we've gone through these chapters, we've realized that even under the reign of Saul, we have neighboring nations that are coming against Israel and taking the territory that had been given to God's people. Uh, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 6. And this is, I take you back to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and these verses just, just to show you the very city that the ark of God is now housed in, the very center of the worship of God's people in Israel is in the very city that they still had to take even after they had been commanded to take the whole land that God had promised to Israel. Uh, there is yet land and there's still uh, yet to be places to be uh, conquered for Israel at this time. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame, quote, and he said, quote, the lame and the blind, <laughs> who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built a city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him, something to always remember. And this is said often of David, and the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And I, and I go to that to show you that for David, it didn't matter how fierce the peoples were. It didn't matter what type of reputation they had in the world. A formidable force? Mm. As far as David was concerned, there was no formidable force against God and his people. David attacked the enemy, and he took the territory that God had given to Israel. Uh, in what we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read how it was that the Jebusites were referring to the Israelites. They were basically saying, hey, even the lame and the blind can beat you guys. And he says, well, let the lame and the blind defeat you. And they did indeed defeat the Jebusites. And they overtook Zion, the city of David. And it was there where they established the worship of God and the covenant of the Ark of the Covenant was now there in that very city where the nations around considered the people of that land to be fierce warriors. It didn't matter. And so, under David's leadership, the Israelites began to take territory back 
from the enemy who had originally taken it. Uh, remember, again, how David referred to the Jebusites, even though they were regarded by their nations as fierce warriors. He referred to them with contempt. David referred to them as a people who are hated by David's soul, even. Now, as we read through that, I don't know if you caught that. You know, the lame and the blind, you know, let them come against them, uh, but against uh, a people who are hated by David's soul. Uh, let's explain that a little bit more as far as David is concerned. After all, he is a man after God's own heart, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 12, in verse 29. Deuteronomy 12, 29. It says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. You see, God used his people on many occasions, the Israelites, as instruments of righteousness to judge other nations and remove them from the land that God had given to the nation of Israel. And therefore, this, this land that they were to occupy the very land that they were to dispossess, those people who were practicing these abominable forms of worship, they weren't even to inquire as to how they worshiped those gods. They were to take no part whatsoever in what they were doing. These were abominable acts against the Lord. And it says that the Lord hated what they had done for their gods, for they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You see, the Lord wanted his people in the land to be set aside, to be completely set aside for the glory of God. Regarding the people of God, I, th I thought about how it was that the Lord, what his standard is for us, you and I. There is a standard that he has set before us, Oftentimes we, I hate to say this, we take advantage of God's grace. We repeatedly do things, whether it be getting angry or saying something that is inappropriate, um, allow our eyes to wander to see things that are inappropriate, do things that are unbecoming of a child of God, allow our hearts to settle in on thinking about things that shouldn't be in our hearts at all, and so on and so forth. But regarding us, you see, the Spirit occupies us. We are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And therefore, we ought to be set apart for God's glory. We are to be holy as he is holy. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Think about that. Because as we're preparing our minds, right? Our minds have to be disciplined. We ought to be in control of our thoughts. Because thoughts lead to words and thoughts and words lead to actions. Uh, it's just what, what we do. It's, it's how we function. And, and the Lord created us in that, wise, that way. So, therefore, we ought to capture, take, take, uh, uh, take into captivity every thought and subject it to the authority of God's word. But it says here, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What is the standard? Will you ever achieve perfection? The answer is no. We, we will never achieve perfection, right? Not this side of heaven. We will know perfection when we are in the Lord's presence. But until then, we should be mindful of ourselves. We should pay attention to what we allow to ruminate in our minds, what we meditate on, what we do, what we say, what we look at. Because God calls us to this standard. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's in this manner that we prepare our minds for action. It's in this way that we are sober-minded. We think clearly. Our perspective is, is right according to God's word. It's in this way that we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in this manner. Otherwise, we're all over the place. We are overcome. We are not clear, think, thinking clearly about the truth of God's word and how it applies to our lives. You know, and as we consider these things, we begin to understand how it is that we are to confidently wage war against those things that are not of the Lord, unapologetically. We are to be a people who are holy and righteous, set apart for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. And so, as we understand perhaps a little better what it was that David hated, what he had contempt for, we realized that it wasn't a bunch of innocent people. It was a very people who participated in abominable acts, in those things that the Lord hated. And so David defeated the Philistines, he defeated the Moabites, and they became Israel's servants whom David 
as we see here, brought tribute. So, the, so they, were, they were taxed and they brought tribute to David. So we see her right off the bat. David had, established, had, had been established as king of Israel, had established Jerusalem as the central place of worship for Israel as God had ordained. And David in that place of being right before the Lord did not mess around with the enemies of Israel. He struck them down. Verse 3, as we continue, says, David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah Hamath, as he went to set up his monument at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Tibbeth and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer. David took a large amount of bronze. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. So as David traveled to the river Euphrates, so now he was going to establish basically um, his power and authority in that area that the Lord had given. Again, he had given um, all of this whole land. He had promised to going back to Abraham, right? So he's traveling now eastward to the river Euphrates to establish his power and authority. And Hadadezer, who was a ruler of the Syrian kingdom, came against David, and very simply, they were defeated. David was establishing the kingdom of Israel as far as the Lord had given them. Again, the promise that the Lord had made to Abraham. All the way to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now when the northern portion of Syria came to help Hadadezer, who was from the south, they too were struck. They were defeated by David. And the army of Israel knew victory over them. You see, as we even see in this brief portion of Scripture, quickly we see how it was that there was no nation that was a match to the nation of Israel, to God's people. They were no match to God himself. Not the Philistines, not the Moabites, and not the Syrians. Perhaps we need a reminder of what it says in Joshua chapter 1. As the Lord said, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wouldn't it have been like just wonderful at that point to hear this? Knowing what you know now about the Lord and His faithfulness. If this is what we were told at this very moment, you know, the Lord has given us uh, the whole land from this point, like eastward and north and given us, wherever you go, I'm with you. No nation shall be able to stand against you. No nation. Would you go with great courage and confidence? Knowing that Victory is already yours. He's given us so many promises. That is the exact way we ought to be living our lives. With great confidence. Knowing that we are walking in the truth and God is with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He told them and it's true for them as it is for us today. So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. In other words, don't lose heart. Don't don't grow dim with hope. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Powerful promises that God made to Joshua and his people. They were still in effect. Even at the time of David. And in our day today. And David knew this very well. And we see how it was that he advanced with great confidence in the Lord. You know, Chris Tomlin sings this song, Yes and Amen, and we sing it here at the church. It includes these words. I will rest in your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness. My confidence, my, what I stand on, what, what I trust in. The very promises that you've made to me. Whether anyone believes it or not, it really doesn't matter. I rest in God's promises. My confidence is God's faithfulness. Not anyone else's, my own. In Christ alone, God is faithful. You see, when we trust in God's word, we can be at rest knowing that he is faithful. And that no one compares to him. Our confidence truly is his faithfulness. And this was David. In fact, as we see here, he routed the Syrian army so much so that we see the details of the victory of the army of Israel. But with all with this just absolute victory over them, Know that he did not, this is something worth noting. You know, he had, in what we just read, 
David took from him a thousand chariots, 7,000 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And what did he do? He hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for only 100. Just 100. That's it. Why would David have trusted in the object used by the enemy that was just defeated? Think about that question as we also have this inclination to trust in things of the world that have already been defeated, that are no match to the Lord. The things that we think will bring us peace and assurance and confidence. So we would ask the same question as we ask David, you know, why would David have trusted in the object used by the enemy that was just defeated? They had so many. David was not trusting in chariots. He wasn't trusting in horses. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 15 says this. And this is laws concerning Israel's kings. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. You know, David wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know, it was in this moment as he knew victory over this army that had trusted in chariots and horses and horsemen. And perhaps he was reminded of this. And he was also reminded of the fact that God is true and he is more powerful than any number of chariots and horses that would come against the Israelites. And so he wrote, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Nothing. Can anyone overwhelm God? Not again. Not ever. Verse 7 again says, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Tibbath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. So we see as we read those two verses how it was that all served to either glorify God by displaying them as trophies of God's victories and testifying of His greatness, showing the spoil of the victories over God's enemies, or was later used to build the temple, of that, that, the temple that was built by Solomon. And so it was all used for the Lord. Even though God had not permitted David to build the temple, God was using David to accumulate all the necessary materials to build the temple. And as we read through, these are the victories that are being known after uh, over 
uh, nation after nation after nation after nation. What was David doing with Israel? He was, he was securing it. It was through those battles that peace would be known by Solomon during the time that he reigns. He was securing the nation of Israel to such a degree that his son Solomon would enjoy peace throughout his reign. You know, sometimes as we, as parents, you know, we, we go to battle. We, um, we see a danger, we see something, and we warn, we educate, we bring up the knowledge of Scripture, our kids, and, and we fight those battles in hopes that they will enjoy peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ in knowing that at a very early age, that they would not be enemies of God for any length of time in their own lives. Again, 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the the truth. Why do we have that desire? It's because we can rest when we know that our children know salvation in Christ and are living their lives to glorify the Lord. And everything that they do is governed by God. You don't have to worry about them, right? You You don't have to be concerned, overwhelmed. You know that they are enjoying peace in the Lord, and they are walking in his ways. Well, David was not only accumulating all the necessary materials to build the temple, but he was also making sure that the nation of Israel knew peace and that his son Solomon would enjoy peace throughout his reign. Listen, some people are not directly involved in the work of the ministry, right? Like we were just talking about um, going to Mexico. And uh, we've gone to Mexico, we've gone to Haiti, um, and we've gone to other parts of the world. Uh, We also, um, within the fellowship, the local fellowship here, have a lot of ministry going on. Whether it be um, the ministry of the word within children's ministry, whether it be with the youth, uh, whether it be with the men or the women, And every single other ministry, whether it be worship, whether it be ushers, whether it be security or anything else, is all for one purpose, and that's to bring glory to God, but it's to make disciples. And that is to to teach them how to follow Jesus Christ, to grow. But some people are not directly involved in the work of the ministry, But rest assured that what you do does contribute outside of the immediate direct contact that some people have in ministry simply as you pray, as you give of yourself as far as whatever it is that God has gifted you with or even the talents that you give. That is, I mean, the treasure that you give, your tithes and your offerings all go to further the the gospel of Jesus Christ. And rest assured that the fruit that is known through the ministry is added to your heavenly account as we see in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes of the generosity of the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. I say this because this is a reflection of what we see in David. I brought it up last week. I have to bring it up Again, as far as how generous he was with himself. You see, by many people's standards, what he had given up to that point was enough. Would have been enough. And yet he desired to give more. Remember that he desired to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. He desired to build it a temple. And yet God told him no. And we learned why. And yet, even in that, he didn't hang his head. He still brought the ark of God. He's overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving toward the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He was unreserved in that. He held nothing back. And then he went to work. And we see what he's doing. The generous and cheerful giver is such because of the individual's gratitude toward God. A generous and cheerful giver does not take self into account and any benefit of self into consideration. And such was David. As he did not stop because he could not build the temple, but rather did more to build up and prepare the nation, God's people, for the building of the temple and to glorify God. He didn't dwell on what he couldn't do. I can't do that. I can't do this. Yeah, but you can do so much. Regardless, the Lord has, has entrusted to you so much. 
And so we see with that in mind in verse 6. And this is the key to the victories that he was knowing. In verse 6, it says, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. There was no losing for David. With with that mindset, with, with that kind of hope and gratitude, can one ever lose in Christ? I mean, the Apostle Paul expressed it this way, to live is Christ. It's all a gain. My my whole purpose for living is to bring glory to Christ. So whatever happens, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. I have the hope of heaven. But as far as I am concerned today, I live for the glory of Christ and his alone. And so we see that that mindset, that heart that was set on the things of God for David. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Verse 9. When Tal, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent his son Hadoram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Tal, and he sent all sorts of articles of gold, of silver, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he had carried off from all the nations, from Edom, Moab, Moab and the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So Tal, king of Hamath, was discerning. And he understood and acknowledged that God's favor was with David. So he, in his great wisdom, he, he honored David. He honored him by bringing him articles of gold and silver. He asked about his health. He wanted to bless him because he had fought against the one who had been at war with Tao. And so he knew that God's favor was with David. So he honored him by bringing bringing him these articles of gold, silver, and bronze. What did David do? See, at any moment, David could have taken this unto himself and enriched himself, and yet he did not. Took the articles of gold, silver, and bronze, and he dedicated them all to the Lord. Along with, of course, all of the other articles of gold, silver, and bronze that he had known, that he had received from previous victories. What was brought to bless David was turned over to God to glorify the Lord. I I think this is an exercise for us, right? As we receive, at least in my own life, it seems like I keep being taught this, this lesson. No matter what I'm giving, it should be to glorify the Lord. A little bit more, well, it should be to glorify the Lord. Whatever it is that the Lord entrusts to us, it should be 
to glorify the Lord. And so David was doing such a thing. We can never outgive the Lord. And so he'll meet our needs. But are we honoring, are we glorifying the Lord with what he's entrusted to us? Are we giving him the first fruits of all that we are coming to know? You see, these victories he knew, these victories he knew, they all belonged to one. They all belong to the Lord. And David acknowledged that. And it was the Lord who gave victory to David wherever he went. He acknowledged this. I couldn't help but think about the difference between Saul and David in battles. Because they both battled. They both went into battle. Under David's reign... We know that Israel possessed more of the land that God had promised Israel than at any other time. And yet, under Saul's reign, they were losing territory. The enemy was coming and taking possession of the land. I was thinking, well, Saul was fighting. Who was he busy fighting? (laughs) He was... Saul was busy fighting David, wasn't he? And, and on the side, he was fighting. He was, as, as he had enemies that came against him, he was distracted, right? And so then he went and fought with them. But he was losing territory the whole time. He was not at peace. In fact, at one point, the spirit was withdrawn. Those who are consumed with fighting against God's people end up knowing defeat after defeat, never fully possessing uh, peace, never knowing victories with God's people, with God's people, not against God's people, and advancing the gospel. It's always turbulent. It's it's never together. This, This unity that God calls us to and is beautiful to the Lord. Like Saul, you know, Saul ended up isolated, not knowing a victorious work of the Spirit. And what God desired to do through him, the Lord ended up giving to another to accomplish. Just like, sisters, are you not going through Esther? Right? What did Mordecai tell Esther? I'm going to summarize, you know, if you're not willing to rise to the occasion salvation will come from somewhere else right um, <clears throat> you know the Lord is, is that like that with us if we're not willing to rise to the occasion to have our confidence in him and, and just engage in unity with the brethren then victory will come because it's his will His will will be done. It's up to us whether we will participate or not. Let us not fight against each other. Let us be unified in fighting against the enemy that's coming against the church. That is attempting to undermine and destroy and dismantle the very work of the Lord. The difference between... That's a great exercise to do if you haven't done it already. Note the the differences between Saul and David. 
what they were occupied with, what they were overwhelmed with. As we see time and time again, David, a man after God's own heart, he couldn't get enough of just, I want to do more for the Lord and more for the Lord. He was a worshiper of God. Was he perfect? No. He made mistakes. He made plenty of mistakes. But he continually repented and came back to the Lord and continued to pursue him. Verses 12 and 13, as we read, give further evidence of David's complete victories over the enemies of Israel. And we read through them. And the Lord gave victory to David again wherever he went. Verse 13, this is now the second time this is stated, other than Tal having acknowledged this fact himself. Verse 14 says, So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. And Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Elud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Atub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Shabshah uh, was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were the chief officials in the service of the king. So this, what we have here, is a description of the greatness of David's reign. Uh, he had a great team that had gathered together. It, it, was, it was amazing how it was that God had ordained and anointed David as king of Israel. And yet, him being the greatest king to have ever ruled over Israel, did not do this alone. He, was, he knew victories over Israel's enemies. He confidently judged, but in doing so was just and fair to all, as we see here. But again, also in David's reign, we see noted those whom he reigned with. In other words, no one leads successfully without a committed and able team of disciplined and dedicated people who consistently join in the work, as was the case with David. It's, it's no different anywhere especially here, in, in the, the church, the local church, we should see this being played out time and time again. Because such is the case with the church today. We serve in the body of Christ, which consists of many members. And so it ought to be organized. It, it, it should be consisting of a a work that is unified, going in one direction, advancing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 
why Ephesians chapter 4 is so important as we consider that. Ephesians 4.11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers for this, for this purpose, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The ministry of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers is to equip the saints of church to engage in the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Oh, a picture of the church all working together in this manner. If that is the case, then we can know the same victories as David knew. Just time and time again, what could stand against a church that is united and going in one direction and all the same spirit just going, right? It was a wonderful testament of God's victories in and through David, in and through the nation of Israel that all came together. And we'll see that in this next chapter as we Go through it, verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now after this, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died, and his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal kindly with Hanun, the son of Nahash, for his father dealt kindly with me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites to Hanun to console him. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Have not his servants come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And they departed. When David was told, uh, when David was told concerning the men, he sent messengers to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Listen, consider David. David was a warrior, was he not? He was a warrior. He was a man who was battle-tested and led mighty men because he was a mighty man. He was a warrior. As we see this, he was also a man of great compassion. He was the ruler of the nation of Israel. He had known many victories over God's enemies. He had already shed much blood. But he also knew that not all of the surrounding nations were hostile toward Israel. As we saw with Tao, king of Hamath. And now we see this compassion toward Hanun, who ruled in the place of his father who had just died. He wanted to show compassion. He wanted to send messengers to console him in this time of grieving. He wanted to deal kindly with them as his father had dealt kindly with David. 
And so David sent messengers to console him during this time of grief. His heart went out to him. But as we see here, it didn't go so well. You see, Hanun received bad counsel. This is what bad counsel does. It destroys, it undermines. As bad assumptions are made. We don't know why it was that these men gave this counsel to Hanun. We don't have those details. We don't know. But they successfully poisoned Hanun's mind. And the perspective of David was twisted. And the men he sent enacted upon the bad counsel he was given. You know, that's why we need to be mindful of our own hearts. Because I've noticed that those who are most critical toward others demand and expect the opposite toward themselves. It's interesting how this happens. Those who are liars suspect others of lying all the time. Those who are deceiving suspect others of deception all the time. Those who steal suspect others of stealing. Those who are preoccupied in demanding compassion seem to be less, least compassionate toward others. Those who demand for others to be merciful are least merciful. Those who demand for others not to judge are often judging most themselves and applying their own standards. Those who demand for others to be understanding are least understanding toward others. Meekness, humility, and overall spiritual integrity, faith toward God need no herald to proclaim them for the individual who possesses them. You see, it is God who exalts. We humble ourselves before God, and it is God who exalts in his due time, at just the perfect time, if he sees fit. If not, we remain in that place. For those who actually possess these qualities, they are applied, and yet never is anything expected in return. It's not demanded. It just is what it is. Why? Because those things are being expressed for the glory of one. And not for any other reason. Not because we're expecting anything in return. Those who last in ministry are those who are applying this very thing, learning this as you go. We need to express this actually toward each other all the time. We need to grow to a place to where we are expressing those qualities, those characteristics that we find in God's word toward each other. But we see here that Hanun, well, instead of considering and knowing David, he didn't know David. His father knew David, but he didn't know David. He quickly took the bad advice of his counselors and, well, he humiliated David's messengers who were there to console him. They were there to console him in his time of grieving. 
and then insulted them, disgraced them, and humiliated them. It would have been enough of an insult to cut, cut off their beard, but they didn't stop there. It says that they cut half of their garments off at the, at the midsection. You guys get the picture, right? Midsection. It was to totally disgrace them, totally humiliate them. It was to expose them. But listen, the insult was not intended for the individuals, but rather for the king who sent them. They were completely disregarded and hatred was shown toward them because they hated King David. They didn't trust what David was, had sent his messengers to do. They said very clearly they were there to console him. David's kindness was rejected and instead he was dismissed and disgraced. We as Christians experience things that are the like. In John chapter 15, in verse 18, says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Uh, I remember these, um, these disciples that had been persecuted and um, treated badly, thrown into prison wrongly. They were beaten and then commanded to not speak anymore in the name. They went away rejoicing. And thought themselves, uh, you know, having received favor from the Lord because they were, they were persecuted on behalf of the, the Lord, right? Listen, as they did not really know David, Hanan did not know David. The world does not know Jesus. And so we expect these things from the world. We, we expect opposition. We expect persecution. We expect all of these things. Well, in David's case, this is what was received. This man did not know David. Like I said, his father knew David, but he didn't know David. And he, he accepted this bad counsel, and he humiliated those messengers that he sent. And in response, David didn't display these messengers, uh, didn't send them around, or um, didn't display them use them as pawns or uh, these instruments to arouse the anger of the Israelites. That's not something that he did. This is what he did because in his compassion, he showed respect and understanding toward them. He honored them, actually, by having them stay in Jericho. And he told them, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back and then come back. And so he didn't use them. So again, it shows David's integrity. It shows that he really did sincerely send these messengers to go console Hanun. And at the same time, he wasn't using them for any political gain or to earn the favor of the people. And he did not put them on display. Again, David was showing that he was a man of understanding. Verse 6 
It says, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, Hanun and the Ammonites sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Aram, Makkah, and from Zobah. They hired 32,000 chariots and the king of Makkah with his army who came and encamped before Mediba. And the Ammonites were mustered from their cities and came to battle. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the open country. Well, Hanun realized that his actions stirred up the Israelites. And they expected to go to battle soon. And he prepared the Ammonites for battle. Uh, but we know that Hanan had done this to himself, right? Remember that David, what David had sent the messengers to do, to console Hanan. And so we know with that rejection, um, and they were treated with contempt, totally lacking in discernment and receiving what David was giving him. Now he stirred up uh, David and the Israelites, and so they assembled, preparing for battle. So Hanun, in that preparation, called on mercenaries to help them in battle. These soldiers for hire, or we also know them as soldiers of fortune. Uh, this is a, a person uh, who will serve in any army or undertake any risk for personal gain or just because they love adventure. They just love the battle, so they'll, they'll go and fight for, for money for anyone. So Hanun knew that he stood no chance. In do, so doing, what he was expressing, what he was communicating, he knew he had no chance before the army of Israel, and he was doing everything he could to protect himself. David heard of what Hanun was preparing for, and he called on Joab, the commander of the army of Israel, and the mighty men. They rallied them. He rallied them as Hanun drew up for battle at the entrance of the city. I had heard this before, but was reminded as I was going through how it is that a leader is nothing without followers, and followers are nothing without a leader. There's a mutual need. But a leader is often tested in circumstances that involve isolation and opposition. Resolve is tested. Character is tested. Will the leader fold under the weight of their calling when the things seem impossible? Well, if the leader perseveres and endures, then they can lead and encourage others to do the same. And they can be relied upon when the whole team is in the midst of immeasurable conflict and opposition. I've seen this in the past, how it is that why is it that in certain occasions, and I know I've, I've referenced my time going through um, the training that I've gone through as far as the military is concerned, but in some cases... You have to rely on each other because it's a matter of life and death. And under extremely difficult circumstances and trials, you better know that the man that is standing next to you or is topside can be trusted, will not leave his post, and will do everything, never leave, no matter what is coming against him. See, that's how we ought to be. We ought to be battle-tested. We, we ought to, you know, have endured the, the pressure test that the Lord puts us through. To know that 
any working pressure that's going through us in the moment can be withstood and we can serve the purpose that God has designed us to serve and that is to bring glory to him, to be relied upon as a team member amongst God's people. And when it comes to leaders, oh, how much more, how much more is expected out of the leader to remain? And so David called upon the mighty men and he gathered them together. You know, Luke 16, 10 says, one who is faithful with very little will also be faithful with much. So David does not occupy himself trying to figure out why Hanun had reacted in such a way. Remember that. But simply prepared for battle with the best of warriors to lead the charge and take out the person and nation who had presented himself as an enemy to David and Israel. So he didn't preoccupy with himself, himself with why it was that Hanan responded that way. He just prepared himself for battle. David was not backing down. He knew whose side he was on. He was confident in the Lord. Therefore, he knew those uh, whose side Hanun was taking in that very moment. He, he knew. Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We know that to be true in the case of the Lord, right? We know that to be true. So Hanun and his army drew up in battle array. David called on Joab and the army of the mighty men of Israel. Verse 10 says, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and they were arrayed against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be strong and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of God, our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near before the Syrians for battle and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai, Joab's brother, and entered the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This means to come alongside another who is under intense weight and help them to bear up that weight. To help them lift. It's both working together. It's referring to the weight of responsibilities and circumstances that we find ourselves in. But what if someone runs out from under the weight? Here's the way you take it. Is that bearing it up together? No, it's not. If someone runs from their responsibilities and denies you helping them in their time of need, then you cannot bear another's burdens with them. This is what this verse calls for, with them. For instance, if Joab had told Abishai, I have my own battles to fight, and I won't be able to help you out. Or if Abishai did need help, but instead of accepting the way Joab was coming to his aid, he criticized that help and then pushed him away. Would that be in the fulfillment of Galatians 6.2? No, it would not, right? It's burying the weight together. Thanks a lot, buddy. I'm going to scoot over right now. <laughs> Let's bear this weight together. Joab and Abishai 
exemplified this. Hey, let us appreciate each other's help in bearing our burden, however the other person does. And so both fulfill the law of Christ to love one another as Christ loved us, according to John 13, 34. Pay attention to what Joab said here because it is such good insight to how we ought to be with one another. Humility. If they are too strong for me, help me. If they are too strong for you, I'll help you. It's a commitment toward one another. I will will not leave you. Again, that goes back to what I was saying. You're battle-tested. You will not leave your post. That is it. I am committed. I have devoted. I have proclaimed. I have declared. This is it. I heard Pastor David yesterday how he asked some years ago someone that was telling him how just having this conversation. And he asked him, let me just ask you a question. Where will you be a year from now? And the answer, I don't know. I don't know where I'll be a, a year from now. And he says, I do. I'll be right here. I'm, I'm going nowhere. I, I've been called to this. I have... I've given my word that this is what I'm going to do. This is, this is what I've been called to do. I've been, serve, I've been called to serve the church as the pastor of this church. I'm going nowhere. Is that the type of commitment we make? Because in, this is humility. Too, too strong for you, to, for me, help me. <laughs> if it's too strong for you, I'm going to help you. Secondly, there's sincere encouragement. Joab tells Abishai, be strong. Be, be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Why would you tell me that when, when I'm in this state of just like such difficulties? You know what I'm going through. That is the wrong thing to say to me. Okay, I'm sorry. But we are under attack. You guys, you guys know that we're under attack right now? You guys know that? The church is under attack. It's under constant attack. So I'm going to tell all of you, regardless of what you're going through, you know, we're, we're no different than you guys. My wife and I and our family, we, we go through stuff. It's not like we're exempt. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, yeah, pastors and their families, they're They're exempt. No, in fact, I think those who step up in the ministry uh, are, are attacked even more. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. I think we, we all are attacked. But we need to tell each other, brother, be strong. Brother, be strong. Be strong. Stand up. I know you're going through tough times. Stand and be, account- and be counted for. Right? Stand. Let's do this together. That's what, Abishai, that's what Joab was doing with Abishai. Be strong. Be selfless also. He said, let us use our strength, whatever we have. Let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God. Was it for them? Yeah, not at all. Was it at their expense? Yep, it sure was. 
Let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God and faithfulness to God. Because in the end, this is what Joab said to Abishai. May the Lord do what seems good to him. To him. Regardless of what we believe, our opinions and all of that, the one thing that will hold us together is if we make the same statement. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Whatever it is. May we yield to his will. In the midst of doing all you know to do, you trust that God is doing what he wills and are okay with whatever that may be. And now they advance to the battle line and both Assyrians withdrew from before Joab and the Ammonites withdrew from before Abishai. So they drew up, they came up to the battle lines. Deuteronomy 28, 7 says, The Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. That's exactly what we saw here. They simply came up. They were being faithful and trusting in God. And finally, as we close, verse 16 it says, But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates with Shophak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to them and drew up his forces against them. And when David set the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 7,000 chariots and 40,000 foot soldiers and put to death also Shophak, the commander of their army. And when the servants of Hadadezer uh, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became subject to him. So the Syrians were not willing to save the Ammonites anymore. So they were done <laughs> helping them out. Listen, we know the enemy is relentless too. Don't put your guard down. Don't think that he's going to take a little vacation. The army is relentless, or the, the enemy is relentless. And when word got out to the rest of Syria of this defeat that they had just known, they all rallied together and came against Israel. From farther east, they all came together. Okay, let's do this. But when they did, something beautiful happened with Israel. When David heard what they were doing, he gathered all Israel together. He called on all Israel. Along with the mighty men, they all advanced toward the Syrians, and the Syrians were absolutely routed. They were defeated by Israel, and they ended up making peace with Israel, becoming subject to Israel, and were not willing. At that point, they were not willing to help the Ammonites out anymore. All of Israel cooperated with the lead, with the, uh, under the leadership of King David. All of Israel was willing to battle against the organizing of the enemy who was set on destroying Israel. And that's why I ask you, if you were to know the enemy is coming against us. And I warn you, the enemy is coming against, against us. How would we assemble? I'm calling you to assemble. I'm telling you, the enemy is at our door. He wants to destroy. He wants to completely undermine the work that we have going on here. He's right there. How then will you respond to the call? You see, we have warnings throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul. We have Jesus telling us, in this world you will have tribulation. 
I send you out as sheep among wolves. There are those who will try to bring in false doctrine, those who will try and, um, well, undermine the very work of God within the local churches. How then will you unify? How will you gather together and come against and destroy the work of the enemy by simply advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ? And when all of Israel gathered and fought together, there was a glorious conclusion and a beautiful victory that was known over the enemy. We just read it. We just went through it. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Heavenly Father, we rejoice. We are encouraged, Lord, as we know that there's no one who compares to you. That when your people are united, coming together, under the banner of one, Lord, and we are, we're all focused on trusting in you and gaining victory for you and your glory, Lord, there's nothing that can stop. Stop us as a, even as a local church. And so, Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement. Lord, I pray that we would take to heart whatever it was that you had for us individually, Lord, to gain from this time in your word. And as a church, Lord, that it would serve to build us up, to strengthen us, to continue to, to advance the gospel, express the hope that can only be known through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For we are saved by grace through faith in him alone. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.